Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above the Dongcheng district of Beijing. David Moser, my esteemed co-host, is off in the wilds of, I think, like Hebei or Oregon <laughs> or something. So he's not here with us today, but I am very fortunate to be joined by, direct from Shanghai, in town this weekend, DJ Bo, Brian Offenther, who is here to do a couple of sets at some of the clubs here, but also to talk about the music scene in China, his adventures DJing all around the country and beyond. And maybe once again to pick up where our previous conversations comparing Beijing and that other city down south and see if maybe he has some thoughts on this particular <laughs> cultural divide. How you doing, Bo? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. I, I know what happened. You sent David out because you wanted to have an intimate conversation. No distractions. You wanted to get right down to the truth. So I appreciate your efforts in throwing him out of here so we can really get down to the nitty gritty. Thank you very much for that, Jeremiah. It, it was definitely a concerted strategy to have a conversation about music and then not invite the person in our podcast family who is actually, you know, musical. <laughs> So this is all, this is really, this is really well thought out strategy on, on my app, on my behalf. So tell us, uh, but what, what are you doing in town right now? Um, how long are you going to be here? I know you're doing some interesting things. Oh, I, you were DJing last night till dawn or thereabouts. Yeah, is that right? 5 a.m. or so, 5.30. It was, it was, once you get over past the sunrise, it, things really get blurry there. And of course, we have to correct the record because you lied to your audience. Maybe not intentionally. I'm not direct from Shanghai because two nights ago on Thursday, I was in Zhengzhou where I was DJing the closing of the Near Bar, which was an amazing night full of bands and debauchery. But we can talk about that later. So to answer your question, though, last night I was at Queenie's or QS, and I was doing a program that I've done a couple different times and places where I was doing a DJ set of 30 minutes of every decade. So at midnight, we played. I played music from the 2020s and then 1230, 2010s and on and on and on. And, you know, we're, we're getting down to Chuck Berry in the 50s. And then we kind of mixed it up a bit. So it was a lot of fun. What was the final song at like 530 in the morning? Oh, well, I always make an effort to close my DJ sets with one particular artist, someone who I really love and have a lot of compassion for, who's really just one of my top 10 favorite arts of all time and that is big joe turner my favorite blues singer and i played the original version recorded for atlantic records of his iconic shake rattle and roll wow, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to kind of usher in the morning yeah usher out the evening before we get into your adventures more recently i i was wondering for those people in our audience who maybe aren't as familiar with your career sure tell us what, what first brought you to this part of the world was it originally as a DJ? Did you come here and become a DJ? What's what's? Tell us a little bit about the backstory here. So I've been in this part of the world on two different parts of my life. And I tell people that it's purely a coincidence. And some people don't believe me with it, but it's completely true. A lot of people who end up in East Asia, you know, maybe they grew up and they loved watching kung fu films or they love anime cartoons from Japan and they get interested in quote-unquote, the Orient and things. That was never me. I never was uh, leaned to those sorts of interests. 
I got to this part of the world the first time because I was in college at the University of Florida and I had two passions among other things. One was I love to travel, I love to do Saturday adventures and get people in my car and travel around. And I love to do volunteer, philanthropy work, community sort of things. And I saw a lot of my friends working at coffee shops, smoking too much weed right after they graduated, hanging out in the college. And I was like, that's not for me. So I applied for the Peace Corps. And uh, I was doing some entrepreneurial things. I was uh, designing and selling clothing. And I'm from Florida. So I had some proficiency in Spanish. So I was like, I'm going to do business in South America. And they took my application and they accepted it. Boom, that was great. And then I got a call saying, look, your program is being delayed. You can wait for it. Or we have an opening in Central Asia teaching English. I Like I said, the, the whole purpose was to get out. So what I didn't know at the time is there is always openings in Central Asia teaching English. I didn't know that at the time necessarily, but I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I, you know, it was a little different than what I was anticipating. So I got the letter. It's very Mission Impossible-esque because they don't tell you over the phone where they're going to assign you to. And you get the letter and you can choose to accept it or not. And the letter maybe explodes. I don't know because I answered yes when I got a letter saying Mongolia. I never really had no knowledge of the country of Mongolia. That's a very important distinction. We're not talking about the inner Mongolian province in China. We're talking about the country of Mongolia. So less than 10 days after I graduated, I got sent to Mongolia. Three months training in Dulahan, two years in Darkhan, Mongolia. Then I spent an additional year in the capital, Ulaanbaatar. Moved back down to South Florida where I worked as a dancer, MC for uh, Platinum Gold Entertainment based in the current living residence of Nico McBrain, the drummer for Iron Maiden, Boca Raton. I was looking for different jobs, different positions. I had done a lot of writing, wrote for the New York Times affiliated in my college. At the time, the economy was, was very bad. It was about 12 years ago now, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. I was, I was close there. And I had someone and they said they there was a teaching jobs available in uh, China. I was like, okay. They were the first. I had applied for a whole bunch of jobs. They were the first person to call me. I got sent out to Shanghai. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on doing diplomacy work. Uh, you know, I had I had taken the foreign service exam. That's what I'm going to do. No more of this DJ punk rock singing in band sort of things. Of course, my first real full night. I went to a place called Yuyuntong, which still exists there. I met a man named Adam Crossley. He introduced me a man named Toshi. And they were like, oh, we need you. We're look, we're starting this. Uh, we have this group called Trash A Go Go. I was like, I'm in for it. Let's do it. I had quit. I quit that job before it, the contract was finished. And I've been doing entertainment stuff for about 10 years in Shanghai, China. Now, you've DJed in almost yes. every part, however you want to define this, between province, autonomous region, renegade province, whatever. Political have you. distinctions. Political distinctions yeah. in China. 30 of the 34. 30 of the 34. At the moment, yes. What's 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 on the to-do list? What's the four that are still outstanding? There's the uh, semi-autonomous regions of Xinjiang and Tibet. One of those I am booked for. The other one I had been booked for, but it keeps getting canceled. We'll see. That's, you just kind of got to play with that. And in, ter in terms of the two provinces, there's one that I'm booked in. I should have this available, but I don't. I'll try to pull it up on my phone as we do it. But I uh, let me let me tell your listeners right here. 
I am not convinced that Jilin actually exists. It's on the map. You can see it there. I've talked to people who say they were born there. I've talked to plenty of businesses there. But Chongchun might actually be hypothetical. You know, the conspiracy theorists who say that all robot uh, birds are robots or that Australia doesn't exist. I might be getting on that bandwagon because I cannot figure out how to DJ there. And of course, I'm being a little facetious, but they have severe restrictions in terms of allowing foreigners to perform there. And, uh, you know, when you get to these sort of, you know, there's a lot of millions and millions of people, but these less commonly explored provinces in China, Gansu, Langzhou, like those places, I reach out to these places like, why do you want to come here? Like, I literally get messages like that. I'm like, it's going to be cool. It's going to be fun. I want to check out the local music scene. I want to pick up music because that's really what I do. So I've DJed in 42 cities in China and 29 countries. And what I really love to do and is pick up the local music there and then spin it at my other gigs, kind of creating a sort of ecosystem of my travels and what I kind of do. What's been the most memorable example of introducing a new species into an ecosystem? <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I, I, I love it when people ask me where songs are from and I get those questions fairly often. And that's really cool to do. Here, here's an interesting scenario that happens a lot. It's happening less in China now, but it's still somewhat common. Like last night in Beijing, the amount of places that actually spin or have music that's derived from Beijing is super limited. It's an interesting thing to consider, right? So, you know, I was playing music from Beijing. Last night I played rolling bowl, a rolling bowling song. People can correct me if I'm wrong. It's probably the only place in Beijing where Beijing music was spun in a nightclub scenario, which is an interesting thing. There's one really memorable one where I was playing. I was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and I played the song called KL by a legendary hip-hop uh duo called Too Fat. I was visiting Malaysia and I was the only one playing Malaysian music with this crew of DJs. And they're like, we're in Kuala Lumpur. This song is called KL. You think there would be really uh, a local pride going on there. But scenarios like that happen very often. And I and I encourage people to shout out the rep their scene and, and really create a sound. A lot of people, club owners will book me or promoters and they're, they're, they're looking for a Western, a Laowai, a white guy or whatever. And, you know, I think that's really ridiculous. You know, you there's such an interesting local music communities. And I think if you want your scene or your nights to stand out, you should have some local flavor in it. That's what I think. You know, you mentioned uh, one, I guess one of the challenges of booking these gigs is that you have to deal with local conditions everywhere. Sure. You mentioned that, that Jilin, the Dongbei, is a particularly challenging place. And we, we know that Dongbei tends to be one of the more conservative parts of China. Mm -hmm. But what is the difference between doing a set at a gig in like Ningxia versus doing a set like in Shanghai? I mean, I, I wonder too, maybe a different audience but do you approach it differently do you get a different response from the from the crowd yeah i mean absolutely it's 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 really any sort of performance and especially in a form like djing where there's more interaction a lot i mean stand-up i shouldn't say that but it's one of the more interactive forms where you're really trying to set up a reciprocal relationship where you get people dancing and vibing out that's a big part of um being a dj and yeah like uh different club atmospheres you know like i 
I think it's a combination of a couple things. But like, I want to be able to, if you, if you, Jeremiah, if you and your dog were to throw me in a burlap sack and throw me in your trunk and I don't know where I'm going and then just throw me out at some DJ decks, I want to be able to quickly assess the situation in DJ there. A lot of other DJs that they, they like to be a lot more in control of things. And I try to, I do do some very curated theme specific sort of nights, but I want to be able to read the audience and, and perform in those contexts. So, I mean, a lot of, a big thing is if it's a proper DJ nightclub or if it's more of a, you know, uh, a rough bar, I was just in Jiangxi and Shangro and they have this really kind of, blue collar bar there but the the club owner there really likes what i do but those people there they like their guitar they like their rough edge stuff and i i'm very happy to sort of put together a sound that fits that but and this is important still have my own personal spin on it like i try to keep it so that i still have my thumbprints on whatever it is i'm doing so even in that sort of context i'll play some mongolian hard rock and metal music there as well and yeah you that that brings me that was that was you know i'm wearing a a, a t-shirt or a uh tank top that i got in lao one of my favorite situations i don't think i was in Vyongdang, i think it was not Vientin. i played a mongolian hip-hop track and this bewildered mongolian girl came up to me it's like what the hell are you doing playing a mongolian song here in lao so situations like that can happen a lot where you're playing this very specific regional music from Cambodia or you know, Grenada in the Caribbean in a different context. And if those people there have experience and know actually what it is, it can really be an exciting experience. You mentioned that you came up here not direct from Shanghai, but via Zhengzhou and we're yeah. doing a, a party there. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Was it the near bar? Is that the one? Yeah. So I uh, went to, Zhengzhou was one of the harder places to break into as well, but I did finally do it a couple weeks ago, a month and a half ago, and I got booked for um, a few gigs. The the main one was a place called 66 Club, which is in this really cool underground space, very DIY, very cool. And so I DJed there and that was fine. It was more electronic music and hip hop and that sort of thing, but I also got booked uh, kind of last minute at this place called Beer Ghetto, which is real a really tiny hip hop spot where they brew their own beer. Shout out to that place. I just I, I'm probably blown off his spot here, but someone who followed me to Zhengzhou two weeks after that is Sean Stein, who's the current uh, Chamber of Commerce head in Shanghai, and I sent him to Beer Ghetto, and he said he loved it, which I really appreciated. Look, Zhengzhou, I. Some of these smaller towns, they don't necessarily have the most local culture and artistic sort of edge. Zhengzhou is amazing with that sort of thing. It's full of it. And I was really impressed with that. So Beer Ghetto. And then I, a place that had I had been talking to is this place called Nearbar. Real punk rock club. They've got Lou Reed paintings on the cover. Their logo, if I was to describe it to you, would, would uh, just horrify a lot of your audience. And it was it's a, like a live house. And but a lot of the DJs they don't really experience DJing rock music and that sort of thing, which sounds probably a bit easier. But if you really do it in a sort of dance music sort of way, is actually much harder in a lot of ways because it's not made for that sort of thing. 
And so I DJ there, just kind of a last minute thing showed up. They're like, oh, this is great. We really love this. And they gave me a T-shirt they sent me. And they're like, if we have a chance to do something, we'll do it. Well, they have they're having some issues with uh, their locations, the permits. Uh, we don't even get into it. And the owner there, Shin, he gave me a message. We're having our closing party there. We're having a bunch of bands. We want you to come to the closing event. I was like, I, I, I got to be there. It was on a Thursday night. The party started at 7 p.m. They sold 500 tickets, sold out before it started. It went to sunrise. It was preposterous and it was debaucherous. And it was fun. It just had a really great local spirit there. I do a monthly spot for RTHK based in Hong Kong, a longtime radio station there. And I played one of their local bands there called uh, Colombian Cola. And I got to see them in their hometown perform, and it was absolute madness. And that band is bubbling under and I think really has big things coming for the future. I do the same thing. We refer to cities like Zhengzhou as a small town of like, you know, yeah. eight million people <laughs> yeah, or whatever it is. It's just like yeah, they, these sort of run-of-the-mill, out-of-the-way places <laughs> that have like millions of human beings living there. But when you compare them to the the cities like Beijing and Shanghai, yeah, I, I can see how there would be a distinct difference. And they're just they're more. And, and I say this with compassion. They're they're generally more economically depressed than other places as well. There's a lot of struggles in those places. But Zhengzhou, I mean, they have really a really cool art street. They've got a record store there. I've gotten two tattoos there now too, and both were really well done. I was, it was one of the the cooler places. And your bar is definitely. One of I don't I don't want to get hyperbolic here. One of my favorite bar nightclub experiences in China, Asia. Yeah, I kind of wonder if at some point in the next few years, cities like Chengdu, we already know about like Dali and Chengdu and others, but some of these so-called smaller cities may benefit from the exodus out of places like Beijing. Yeah. Or Shanghai, part of that, you know, cost of living, but part of that too, because you know, if you're a, in the cultural space or your cultural field, Beijing's a tough place to be right now. Yeah, well, this was a theme that was touched a little bit on a book that I had the pleasure to edit and do a playlist chapter for, which you've covered right here on Barbarians at the Gate podcast with the main author Andrew Field. In the book, he he touches a little bit, but then it was explored more. So. His perspective of the last 20 years in China music, and we did a book launch event via my online music discussion group called the Critical Music Club. We did a live event in Beijing. And at, at Soy Bar, right? What's that? At Soy Bar. Is that yes, yeah. yes. Put together by uh, Eric, who organizes a lot of hardcore events. And someone who showed up there is someone who's actually currently on tour in Southeast Asia, who's D from the group Gumbleed. Very principled, very high-quality punk rock band. They live it. They do it. They're, he's a really smart guy. And he talked about that sort of sort of effect. You know, Beijing, it used to be a lot more livable. You could work part time and have a, a little shared apartment and the practice spaces were cheap and you can get enough gigs going. Whereas now that's a lot less possible. And because of that, you have a lot of artists who kind of spread out there and you're getting a lot more talent in those things. And when there's political pressure in places like Shanghai and Beijing, do they affect other places? 100% yes. We just talked about Jilin, where I've got text messages right here that I pulled up of them saying, look, we, we can't have foreigners perform here. But we're still talking about dozens and dozens of cities, and a lot of them could slip through the cracks and create their own ecosystem of art and entertainment. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, Andrew Field's book, you know, because I think one of the things I've been fascinated about, just both being interested in music and interested in history, is the is the way music has evolved both in Shanghai, in Beijing, and in other parts of the country. And of course, you know, Shanghai had an important story to part of that story. You're talking thinking about the Shanghai jazz scene, which Andrew's written about, mm-hmm. the Beijing rock scene, which hey, Andrew's written about. You know, tell me a little bit what have you feel about Shanghai has influenced your own career yeah. and and what makes if you will and I I'll, I'll allow, I will allow it if tell me why Shanghai is so special musically and then I promise I won't jump across the table. <laughs> well let me there's a bunch of different things um first of all I I, I want to be uh, very explicit here I did not go to Shanghai with a specific aim in mind I mean my experiences were shank with Shanghai were watching like the introduction to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom you know like that 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 sort of thing there but I have a we can I can explore this in a lot of different ways like for example as you know as I've established to you in a lecture that I've given at NYU and other universities Shanghai is the actual home of rock and roll music, where it's no, no, you're, you're not talking about the birthplace of rock music in China now. No, no, no. no you're no. actually making an argument that Shanghai, that not only is China taking credit for inventing golf, football, and just about everything else, but in fact, yeah. Shanghai is the birthplace of rock and roll. Move over Memphis. Move o- Me- Memphis. Get out of here, Alan Freed out in Ohio. Goodbye. Actually, Shanghai. We'll get to that in a bit, but. One thing that I got to mention is that, you know, you've talked about on your podcast before sort of the difficulties and the complications of the sort of glorifying of Shanghai, the Shanghai chic sort of thing, which I completely understand. It's really complicated and you're dealing with a lot of really sort of negative things, but it also did promote a lot of really interesting combinations and artistic movements and that's a really beautiful thing there. I mean, when we're talking about Shanghai, we're talking about the home of the China film industry. As uh, you can see and your your viewers can imagine, I have a tattoo right here of Ruan Lingyu, who is my favorite uh, Shanghai film actress. I have her tattooed on my arm there. So there's the Xinhua Film Company and other interesting film movements, and it, it comes out of Shanghai. It probably came a lot from the international sort of movement. And you also have interesting people who got attracted here, like Whitey Smith, and Andrew actually did write an intro to his book there. These Because it had sort of attracted a lot of these sort of hooligans and never-do-wells or people who wanted to see something interesting because Shanghai was not officially recognized because of the Japanese occupation and because you had the concessions there, a lot of people could move there and that really created an interesting sort of dynamic there. Look, Shanghai has a great history of jazz, opium, and whores. And I do my part to keep it going, at least the spirit of it, we can say there. In terms of music with Shanghai, of course, you have the jazz aspect. You have Teddy Weatherford, who who made his way here. And the the combination of um, Western jazz, of course, where jazz derives from, and the Eastern sort of melodies created an interesting sort of legacy here. And Shanghai is where you would have people like Douglas Fairbanks, visit the great silent film actress and Charlie Chaplin and, and other people. This is where they would come. We're talking about the early part of the 20th century there. Since then, you know, Shanghai has, through difficulties and different revolutions, held on to a bit of that sort of jazz sound. There has been some 
rock music that's been kept survived there. We try to keep an active scene going through things like the We Are Shanghai music compilation. And some some really cool bands have done things there. It has never defined itself with a particular sound the way that Beijing has or Chengdu has uh, to a degree. But underneath the neon signs of the corporate brands and the fashionista sort of vibe of Shanghai, there is an, a fascinating underbelly, which, you know, Shanghai is the most film noir of all of the cities in China because of this sort of interesting combination of elements that I mentioned before. And I think that's really cool. I think it's worth exploring. I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to buy into most of that there. But okay. invented rock and roll. All right. So I have a three-prong argument that says that Shanghai invented rock and roll. Uh, here's the summary version of that. One, when you think of important fronts of World War II, I think Battle of Shanghai. Shanghai is very important for that. I mean, the Japanese invasion here was was really important, and you have the uh, it was it was a very important port during World War II. And of course, with World War II, you're talking about the first military excursion that was integrated from America, and that really created a dynamic of black and white music, so called mixing together, which I think is an essential uh, component of rock and roll. And of course, you have the V-discs. Are you familiar with the V-discs at all? Yeah, for those people who aren't familiar, explain what a V-disc is and, and why that was so important for like disseminating yeah. American music around the world at that time. So to manufacture uh, records uh, required heavy hardware, and we're talking about you know materials that were needed uh, for the war efforts, well, those factories were basically seized up and used for military efforts, but they had to keep some sort of music industry going, just at least a, a bit of that. And even though a lot of the musicians were drafted and bands were kind of torn apart there, they did keep some music industry going. And for the most part, it was done as the as an official service for the American military. And those were called V-discs, victory discs. So they would have artists like uh, Louis Jordan and Symphony 5, who I love, who is a very interesting and important component, uh, root of rock and roll, and even Sinatra, who was, who was young at the time, but doing his thing. And they would have them record special versions of their songs or new songs. And a lot of the times they're tagged with, go get them, boys. And sometimes tagged with some uh, derisive terms for the Japanese enemy, which we don't need to get into here. But, you know, these discs were made for those efforts and they were giving out to the soldiers. And a lot of the, the military guys, as always happens, tends to be... Uh, economically uh, not as strong people. So they're getting music and getting their records for the first time and they would trade them up and swap them out and they were being exposed to new music. So world, reason number one would be World War II and Shanghai's importance for that. Reason That's reason number one. Reason number two was that Shanghai provided an opportunity for jazz musicians and uh, artistic people to survive and where otherwise they might have issues. Teddy Weatherford is a great jazz guy. And a lot of these musicians played on a very important two-part concert series, which was at Carnegie Hall. And that was the Spirituals to Swing concerts. Okay. So the very short version of that, this was the first time that music, and this is in the 1940s, 
was yeah 40s i think uh, no it's got to be a little earlier than that anyway we're talking about the early part of the 20th century here and at carnegie hall here's what's important what's important was carnegie hall very prestigious hall in america very well respected and what they were doing for the first time is allowing black music to be exposed to the upper crust performing at this prestigious venue here so you had the fisk jubilee singers there you had artists like big joe turner who i mentioned before there and this was important because it really showed respect for black music forms like gospel and blues music and by having musicians performing there it really gave it a sort of stamp of approval there these records are available on a vinyl and uh some, there's some versions of it which are available digitally. I highly suggest you check out those concerts. So a lot of the musicians who played at the Spirituals to Swing concert series at Carnegie Hall had performed in Shanghai. Shanghai gave them the opportunity to keep practicing their craft, which is very, very important because with rock and roll music, we need that sort of black roots for it. And this really allowed it to be respectable. That's reason number two. Reason number three is the most important part of the research, which is one of the soldiers who was based in Shanghai was a young man named Scotty Moore. Scotty Moore was a GI here. He did the Shanghai thing. He dated a Russian woman. He walked around the Bund. You read all about his story in his autobiography, his memoir. And when he wasn't walking around Shanghai, he was practicing on his guitar uh, on his ship. And it was a very frustrating experience being away from home here. And he says in his own words that he invented the first guitar licks, which were used for his main musical output on his way out of Shanghai. Those are his words in his memoir. Scotty Moore uh, later became a session musician for Sun Records. A young man who sang a song for his mother came in. That was Elvis Presley. Scotty Moore said, I'm going to be this boy's manager. He was Elvis's, Elvis Presley's first manager first guitarist they toured all around the south and went out to vegas and etc cetera, etc cetera. so scotty moore says he invented the guitar licks of rock and roll in shanghai on his way out of shanghai which is elvis and elvis is basically one of the four main ideas for the birth of rock and roll so boom we talked about shanghai uh world war ii we talked about the spiritual for swings and we talked about scotty moore former shanghai denison so clearly shanghai is the home of rock and roll well, it's an impressive link there. I, I like the Scotty Moore. I like the idea of Scotty Moore as a as a, a young GI. I think actually he was uh, underage even when he first yeah. joined the first joined the Navy, and uh, the idea that he was practicing his licks um, while shipbound in Shanghai is an interesting idea because it really is. It is kind of Scotty Moore's guitar that takes Elvis into kind of rock territory as we kind of think of it. And you think about it, the enormous influence. Uh, he had on what Keith Richards and sure. every almost every guitarist who came George Harrison was every guitarist who came after him always kind of referred back to Scotty Moore and and his, this rather deceptively simple sure. uh, style he played yeah like uh, in Keith Richards' memoir he's like everyone was watching Elvis and wanted to be Elvis he was looking over at the uh, the Blue Moon Boys Bill Black and Scotty Moore is like I wanted to be like Scotty Moore so yeah and Elvis was playing a toy acoustic guitar those early records of Elvis it's just Elvis Scotty Moore and Bill Black this is before DJ Fontana even joined on drums so I'm a big Elvis guy so this is really important so Scotty Moore, I mean, there you go. Like some people will point to Rocket 88 but by Ike Turner or under the name Jackie Preston. And 
who, who did the vocals on the song. Some people will point to Alan Freed. Some people will point to Rock, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets. Elvis is at least in that conversation with uh, That's All Right Mama, backed by Blue Moon of Kentucky as the first rock and roll single. So, And there's Scotty Moore, Shanghai Denison. You know, from a Chinese history perspective, too, we, we think about the list of all of the great kind of all the all the famous sojourners, the people who traveled through. Maybe they weren't here very long, but they traveled through Shanghai. They traveled through Hong Kong. They traveled through Beijing, picking up some aspect of their uh, life here that they would then take and make it a part of their image later on. You know, think about like uh, Wall. I guess at that point she had a different name, but Wallace Simpson, the woman, and sure. her time Shanghai in Shanghai, and Be- time in Shanghai and Beijing, and how that kind of influenced some of her style later on. I know that Paul French, the the author, is yeah. is, is collected and has written about many of these people in, in his book. Well, Bo, I I know that you actually have another gig tonight as well here in Beijing. What are you, what are you going to do? What what's what's on for tonight? We're, by the way, we're taping this on a on a Saturday. What's going on Saturday night? Tonight, I will be at Mooney Bar for my first time there. I have a long relationship with Moon Glow Burlesque, which is uh, China's premier burlesque organization. And we're going to be doing a surf rock night there. I'll be DJing that sort of music. And there's going to be some sexy people performance dancing. And uh, it's going to be a good time. You know, I think this is one of these things, too. Like, you, you, there was sort of this talk over the summer, like, and, and I've experienced this, you've experienced this, like, well, foreigners are forbidden from performing because it's dangerous. And that is true, except that it is so wildly, um, like, the enforcement of it is so uh, completely arbitrary. It feels like, as you, you know, you have people who are, like, getting pulled into the police station for playing like folk music concerts. And now we're doing burlesque on a rooftop. You just never know there. Is there luck? Is there risk involved with it? Yes. Am I going to let that stop me? No, I, I understand why people are trepidatious to perform and it even really affects the audience a lot. It's com- it's, it's complicated. You know, I was just pulling up this message that I got from Jillian. And this is a quote. We have a lot of party, but cannot use foreigners. Please understand, my man. So uh, you never know, and uh, it's it's willy nilly. You know, if you really want to censor something, don't block it a hundred percent of the time. Block it fifty percent of the time, and people will get frustrated and stop bar- bar- bothering with it. That's pretty much been the strategy here. I think yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Well. I, thank you so much for coming in. I hope eventually you do make it to Jilin, if for no other reason than to prove to yourself that it is, in fact, a real place. And I, I really want to thank you for stopping by on your way between gigs while you're here in Beijing. Thank you very much, Bo. Thank you very much, Jeremiah. And thank you all for listening. You can join us again on another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, David will be back with us in a few weeks when he returns from the wild of wherever the hell he is. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you again. <laughs>